0: from the dark recesses of my unconscious mind into the glaring light of objective reality. You are listening to The Dark Mind Podcast. (music) Friends and Familiars, Thank you for tuning in to another episode where we explore the boundless realm of dark literature and film. On today's show, we have a writer that combines dark psychology with cold transgressive. His prose is minimalist and sharp and emotionally unforgiving. He's joining me today to talk about his recent novella, The White, as well as his new novella, Scratched. So without further ado, join me as we delve into the dark insight of Matt Michelli. Welcome to the show.
1: Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: Yes, sir. Thank you for joining me on this 30th day of January 2023. I had been following you in the upcoming release of your new novella, The White, and once it was released, I was very impressed with the fearless portrayal of transgressive family dynamics and the ruthless vision of violence so i really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and discuss the book with me today
1: awesome glad to be here
0: so the story is about a married couple that's getting ready for dinner and the husband's estranged mother shows up at the door unannounced after being absent for quite some time I read at the beginning of the book that you wrote this while caring for your wife after she'd been diagnosed with cancer. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. That is correct. I took some time off of work to help care for her. Pretty crazy time of our lives, to say the least. But I always try to find what I can be grateful for and time at home, actually be able to write, be with my wife for two of the things. So yeah, knocked it out during that period. And uh, here we are.
0: Well, was writing the white kind of like a form of therapy for you at the time?
1: Uh, Writing is always therapeutic for me. It's my passion. It's my hobby. So yeah, anytime I can sit down and actually create something and write something, I'm going to leave the office feeling a little happier about my day. You know, it's a break from everything else. Mm -hmm. Not so much the editing process. You know, that's not as much fun. Yeah. Not as therapeutic, you know, but it's very relevant. (laughs) (laughs) Great title to the story. But yeah, anytime I get two or three hours to sit down and actually write, it's a form of meditation, pretty much. The
0: last couple of people I've interviewed, I stopped asking it. I was going to have this stock question where I ask somebody if they or anybody they know is a fan, like actually viscerally enjoys editing. I'm looking for that one person that's like, you know what? I have OCD. I'm meticulous as hell. Editing is orgasmic for me. (laughs) I still haven't found (laughs) it.
1: But, yeah, the climax is during the editing, right? Yeah. I've heard you interview folks that uh, do editing mm. also for other authors and stuff, and they're like, no, yeah. no, I don't enjoy <laughs> it. part of it.
0: Well, I like the way you got into the introspection of the characters, especially the wife, Lily. She loved her husband, but felt that one of his shortcomings was that he never really made her feel protected So what were you attempting to do for the story and the experience of the reader by revealing these messy human emotions?
1: Um, I mean, emotions are a part of it. And I'm a big believer that we don't always say what we're thinking. Mm -hmm. And you saw that a lot with Lily. Mm -hmm. You know, she may say one thing to Margot, but inside she's, you know, wanting to slap her and do whatever else Mm -hmm. to the woman. The husband thing, I'm big into psychology say it's almost a problem I overanalyze everybody that I meet and I kind of have a backstory written in my head of like oh this person went through this and that I you know who knows if I'm right you know but there's always that the grass is always greener kind of thing that some relationships go through Mm. so yeah for a woman typically the normal situation is you want to feel protected Mm. you know you want your husband to take care of you all that kind of stuff and then you know Lily comes to the realization something she's probably known for a while is that he's just not that guy he's a great man but mm. when it comes to coming through and you're iced into your house with uh, no power and whatnot you know he's not, <laughs> not the best guy although his intentions are good he does have his somewhat want to be heroic moments but you know he's just not that guy and there's a lot of people like that you know and that could stem from me personally there's moments that I wish I could get back in life you know or there's times where You know, as I've gotten older, I look at things differently now. It's more of um, 20 years from now, when I look back at this situation, will I be proud of how I handled that situation? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: You know, and I always think of that in the back of my head. And when you're younger, you really don't. It's kind of that, you know, fight, flight or freeze. You do what's convenient for the moment and move on. And I think Dan was there. I think Dan was probably trying to break free of that. And it wasn't really going too well in the story. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: (laughs) He had his moments.
0: Yeah, I'm just, I'm not a fan of, I guess, any kind of story, but especially horror stories or thrillers where the response to the trauma, whatever it is, a serial killer, whatever, like they have these perfect responses. They man up every time or woman up every time. I like it when the characters are real people that have flaws that may not react in this blockbuster movie ready, (laughs) ready ready-made way. You know what I mean? So...
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my characters, I try to make them as believable as possible. And there may or may not be supernatural elements. I won't say it. I won't give it away. But I try to keep those pretty subtle, too. I want it to be a believable story for people. But yeah, you're right. You know, movies and different books where a character midway through the story or the movie just acts completely out of character Mm -hmm. from what you've learned about them. And all of a sudden they're a hero and brave although they've never been brave in their entire life you know it just doesn't Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense you know Uh, (laughs) yeah not a fan either
0: well narcissistic parents are nothing new but it seems like narcissistic mothers in particular are really good at employing plausible deniability in their tactics they'll say something passive aggressive or even overtly aggressive then if you call them on it they'll say they were just kidding or that you're being too sensitive so you actually just mentioned it in relation to this question. So I don't know if you can really comment on it without inducing some sort of a spoiler. But if you can, maybe work around it. Was the snowstorm connected to Margot in any way, albeit, you know, maybe supernatural, maybe not? Because they both had the ability to literally drive you crazy.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Which they did. Um, that's the whole point of the story, right? Uh There's parallels, but again, it's real subtle. I won't say she's connected or not connected. Mm -hmm. I think the readers can kind of come up with their own conclusion on that, and I think that's a little more fun for them. But you will see parallels throughout, and I won't give away the ending, but they're toward the final pages of the book when the ice is actually beginning to melt. i draw some scenes between that and Margot at that particular moment. But yeah, again, I won't give it away. And honestly, again, leave it up to the reader. I'm still not sure.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's not the first time I've heard that. Like you say, you have a tendency to overanalyze people. I have a tendency to want to take something artistic like literature or film and narrow it down into these specifics. And it's just most artists don't write it like that. They want to leave it somewhat ambiguous and let the reader or the viewer be part of the artistic process.
1: That part of your character, though, I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but... um interviewing folks and probably come in handy, maybe having a podcast.
0: (laughs) Oh, there you go. Yeah, definitely.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Here we are, right?
0: Well, one thing that I like is when writers humanize villains, because to me, that makes them scarier and more disturbing. And it's kind of hard for me to decide whether to consider Margot a villain. She was more just kind of an extremely flawed human being. But... If we're going to refer to her as a villain, there are points of introspection where she reflects back to the innocence of her childhood. That's kind of endearing. You know, she comes off as this cold blooded, no pun intended, ice queen that doesn't have a soul. But, you know, you get a glimpse into a human being when she has those reflections. So could you give me an example you admire of a villain that was written in a way that reminds you that they're human first?
1: Um, that's a little tough. I'm going to take a different approach. I'm going to give you one that I really didn't like. And you may disagree with me. (laughs) And I think the introspection and humanizing of certain characters definitely works for some characters. And I think for Margo, it made sense. Mm. One that I absolutely hate. I hate it is Rob Zombie's portrayal of Michael Myers Mm. when he kind of humanized him. I think it was part two, Halloween two. And then Michael Myers is a big biker looking dude. He's not wearing the mask. Oh,
0: I guess I just saw the first one.
1: Oh, okay. Well, then you're not missing it. I
0: don't. I didn't know there was a two. It's, I, I I've lost track. <laughs> hey, yeah,
1: it, it went more into the backstory, and it's been a while since I've seen it. But I just remember thinking, don't humanize the guy. The mystery is part of what makes this guy scary. You know, what's behind the mask? You take the mask off and the mystery away. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Halloween, that newest one, was it Halloween Ends? Oh, my God.
0: Gosh, I saw Halloween Kills and I regretted it. There was no way I was going to see the next one.
1: <laughs> well, the two, in contrast, Halloween Kills was much, much better. Really? <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: wow. Uh, so was it, uh, I mean, Halloween Kills, I spent a good portion just laughing my ass off. Was that oh, how yeah. it was with ends or was it just like, oh God, just kill me now?
1: Um, okay, spoiler alert. So if you haven't seen Halloween Ends, basically he's getting punked by this kind of Wimpy, weird guy. Okay. Just kind of pushing him around this cave. He takes the mask off of his head and he's like being the alpha to Michael Myers. It was a strange, <laughs> just strange, just a strange of movie. Yeah, I'm like, don't ruin him on the last movie. Keep him mysterious. Keep him where you can't beat him. You can't kill the thing or the guy, whatever he is, you know? Mm-hmm. That's what makes him scary. And this one, he's just getting punked by this little guy that wouldn't be able to punk you or I, you know? It's mm-hmm. a weird dude. <laughs> Anyway, fantastic film. I'm just kidding, (laughs) Jamie Lee.
0: (laughs) Well, so would you say that applies to villains in general or just you're specifically talking about Michael Myers? Because I can see Michael Myers. I mean, his character is just that what's the what's the uh, the term for him? There's some turn of phrase they use for him. The I can't remember. But I mean, that's kind of his thing is that he's just hidden behind this mask and There's no emotion to him. He's just like this machine. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, do you think that translates to all villains? There just should be this mystery? or
1: No, not necessarily all villains. And as you read The White and read my other work, hopefully you will. I don't like giving too much away. Mm -hmm. I'm big on the reveal. I think once the reveal comes out, that's kind of your climax. And from there, you got to call it before long. A lot of villains on movies... And again, I'm only thinking of ones I don't like good movie, but I think it was the ring where they just focus on trying to see why this creature ghost demon is killing people. And it's like they're going into this whole backstory like and sometimes I'm like, she's just killing people. Like, that's what makes it scary. Like, you don't know. Yeah. You know, (laughs) like. If you're about to be murdered by some demonic thing. You're not worried about what sent them there in the first place. You're just, you know, <laughs> you're just getting killed or running or you know doing something.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I can kind of agree to your point when I think about what was it the strangers with Liv Tyler? You mm-hmm. know, at the end, yeah. she asks, yes. "Why are they doing it?" And there's no like. Uh, because I was abused when I was a child, or because we're going to sacrifice you to the Al God Moloch. Yeah. The answer was because yep. you were home.
2: <laughs> you know, it's yeah,
1: like, you holy were shit. <laughs> yeah. And that movie was pretty damn good. And even part two was really good. Had a nice uh, 80s throwback feel to it. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. But, but yeah, you don't know what's happening with these people. They're just murdering random people. And that's, you know, random acts of violence are typically the scariest because i think as people we like to control things we like to be able to understand again it comes back to control if we can pinpoint okay this is why this person is acting this way we feel a little more in control of the situation rather than just being a villain that's just murdering people Mm -hmm. you know with no rhyme or reason so again i don't think that's going to be across the board for all villains everybody's different like i said margo i think You know, is she a villain? Is she just a very flawed person? She's got her chance at redemption. But I think adding a little backstory to her made sense. Now, again, Michael Myers, to me, doesn't make sense. (laughs) (laughs) He's just a crazy, unstoppable killing machine. You know, like, leave it at that.
0: Well, with regard to Margot, as you said, she does, towards the end, achieve some personal growth. So is there a plan for a sequel to the white or another story involving Margo. And I hope I'm not giving too much away by saying that Margo is still around at the end.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, they'll find out in 90 minutes. Letter, right? it's <laughs> what happens at the moment? No plans, but you know, there is opportunity there. And, and, You know, I'm not at a point where I'm getting 10,000 reviews, so I'm still able to read every one of them, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which I do. So when I see reviews and even the folks that didn't enjoy the book, very, very few, I, you know, whatever, they must've had a bad day. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) uh, those folks, you know, complain that the book was too short, Mm. you know, that kind of thing. I wanted to know more about this. I wanted to know why. And again, it goes back to that control. Why did this happen? Like what? Mm. It's like, well, that's kind of the idea is don't really know. But having said that, that does leave opportunity. Four sequels, and I've been asked from people, like, please write a sequel. This story could continue with different families. You could continue the Margot story. And again, nothing planned at the moment, but never say never.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You and I would compare it to Have you read The New Girl's Patient by Ruth Ann Jagg?
1: I have. Yeah. I have. I'm actually rereading it, and I told her the only reason I haven't reviewed it is I was reading it during the period of trying to write. The white, and I kind of had a goal set in mind. I wanted to get it done. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you're focused on a project, you'll kind of read some things in your back time, but you're always thinking about that project. So, rereading it right now, between again, writing another project, (laughs) I'm catching up on a lot more because as I'm looking back on the story, I'm like, I must have missed some things here in the story. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I'm looking at reviews and different people discussing it, and I'm like, I missed some key elements of this thing. So, but yeah, it's a short, and that one hits hard too. You know, they're kind of, doing their thing, and next thing you know, you're like, oh, what the hell? Mm -hmm. And I love that. Some people, they want to see that build up to something. They don't want to be so taken off guard, so surprised. And unfortunately, if you're reading The New Girl's Patient, you know, there's a few moments in there where you had absolutely no idea this was going to happen, Mm -hmm. and neither did the character, which makes sense, and then it happens. So yeah, it's a cool little book.
0: Yeah, the reason I brought it up is because I was surprised by both her and you, the way you were able to include All the aspects of a very rich story in a short amount of time, because, I mean, when you think about it, you had the history of the entire family and their interaction with Margot, good steady flow into the inciting incident, and a lot of action going over the peak into a denouement. So when you were writing the book, had you made the decision already that you were going to write a novella and we're going to stick to a particular word count? Or if not, what determines whether you go novella or you want to extend out into a novel?
1: Um, this one I kind of felt would be a novella, but I don't really go into it saying I'm going to write this many words. And honestly, that kind of hurts on this one because of the size of the book. You know, again, I've had a couple of people say it was too short and you go longer. There come about some printing issues where you can't print the name of the book on the spine, on the physical copies. So try getting that into a bookstore. It's a challenge. So I've learned just on the technical side, like, okay, I need to probably get to this word count. But when I'm writing and creating a story, I just kind of let the story go where it goes. This one, again, I think the reveal is big in this and the surprises and the little twist throughout. I don't like giving too much away. it's hard to accomplish that in a 40 to 60,000 word novels. So I think the shorter format for this one just worked. Mm-hmm. And again, I didn't go into it saying I'm going to write this many words and cap it here, or I need to add so many words, anything like that. I just wrote the story, let it go where it went and um, finished with that. Again, future projects, I'm probably going to add a little more uh, descriptive stuff in or, you know, a little more character development just to get those pages for the actual physical size of the book. Mm-hmm. It's always a learning thing with writing. So these are things I never would have thought about, Mm. (laughs) you know, the actual physical size and dimensions of the book come into play, but no, no, it could have been 15,000 words. It could have been 50 and the story leaned toward the prior. So,
0: okay. Well, in your previous book, a Halloween story, I really dug the way that you had three separate stories converging into one. It was kind of like a Tarantino movie almost. Oh, and, cool. <laughs> <laughs> awesome! <laughs> and the story is another example of an outside influence driving people mad. Is the prospect of normal everyday people snapping and doing horrific things, something that you find particularly scary? I know you've mentioned that already, but I mean, is that sort of a preoccupation? And if so, where does that very specific fear come from?
1: Um, I wouldn't be able to name where the fear comes from, but yeah, I mean, it's scary as shit, <laughs> you know, in other words, layman's terms, when just normal people get put in a situation or start freaking out, a Halloween story, that's going to be a annual thing for me, oh. by the way. So every year I'm going to come out with a new one I and mean, I'll probably make it a little trilogy type thing where there's a few stories that kind of intertwine. I've got my idea for this next one, but no, that was just, I set out to write a story about Halloween masks kind of go into that Mm. you know the costume stores always fun high school kids partying trick-or-treaters all that kind of stuff and i just came up with that idea oh this is a cool idea i don't think i've seen it before i'm sure it's been done (laughs) (laughs) you know everything's been done i was like i don't think i've seen this before so let's roll with it and i thought it came out pretty cool for a little story
0: Uh yeah i enjoyed that one well what drew you to the genre of horror
1: um you know that's a tough question my parents They were divorced when I was a kid. That's not what drove me to horror, but what I'm getting to is both of them were fans of horror and they liked creature features primarily. So I watched a lot of horror movies when I was with my dad. I watched horror movies when I was with my mom. And then throw on the older brother and you get the slasher (laughs) flicks. The older sister you get critters Uh and ghoulies and you know, all that stuff. So I was exposed to it at an early age. Now I don't know. You know, I tend to think I'm a fairly happy guy. If it's not horror, I like emotionally draining, emotionally (laughs) exhausting, darker movies and darker books, I guess it's a break from my day to day. You know, my wife and I were kind of those people. And there's some programs that she watches that I don't. But if it's on regular television, I'm probably not going to watch it. Mm -hmm. It's got to have some edge to it. Yeah. Again, that could come from just my childhood being exposed to that kind of stuff really can't say for certain, but yeah, the only show I've watched now that isn't all dark and crazy is probably Yellowstone, and I'm behind on that.
0: Yellowstone's (laughs) not dark and crazy?
1: (laughs) I, you know, it's gritty, I guess, you know.
0: It's dark in the sense of being gritty, I guess. I've only watched a few episodes, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I asked Ruth Ann Jag about that. I was like, <laughs> just a, as a joke, because she lives on a cattle ranch. I was she like, does, yeah. I she is does. it like Yellowstone? Just cracking a joke. And she was like, yeah, old land ownership they're trying to do away with. <laughs> She's like, I mean, oh, it's not quite like Yellowstone, but close. Private land ownership is becoming a thing of the past. I was like, oh, God, I'm sorry I asked. <laughs> yeah, let's not even go on that
1: little <laughs> path, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, I hope we all own a little something here in the future. Yeah. It's not all just, <laughs> but uh, yeah, she lives about an hour from me, little ranch home and they deal with cattle. And So, uh, I guess she's the Duttons, the Duttons of the horror world. is that Yeah. That?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, which writing influence or influences not only influenced your writing, but made you want to write to begin with?
1: Um, I always go back to two. The author that inspired me to write or to start writing would be Chuck Palahniuk. And then I'd say the author that inspired me to continue writing would be Brett Easton Ellis. Mm, Either of those guys are necessarily horror guys. But yeah, when you read my stuff, you'll probably see a little influence from those guys in each of my works. And I know, you know, we may talk about Scratched here. That one's definitely got a more transgressive, satirical feel to it. Mm. But yeah, I just love those guys. Brett Easton Ellis, I can say I love every book of his. American Psycho is my least favorite because it's the longest. And he kind of went away from what I enjoyed about him, which was minimalist writing, Mm. you know, and only really focusing on very relevant details within his book. And then American Psychos on the other end of the spectrum mm-hmm. on that. It's detail oriented. Everything is detailed from you know what lotion he uses to yeah. you know, <laughs> all that stuff, how many times he exfoliates per day kind of thing. But still a great book. But it was just, it kind of went away from the formula that I like from him. Chuck Palenik, and I butcher his name every time, I'll say it differently each time. <laughs> I enjoy most of his books. Some of my favorites are his. Some of them, you know, I don't really care for. I just couldn't get into them, but that's the way it goes. But, uh, yeah, both exceptional writers. I think they're, you know, they're more transgressive, but there's horror elements for sure within each. Mm. Of course, Chuck, he's known for just making people vomit (laughs) with uh, grotesque, descriptive terminology in his books Mm. and certain stories. but, But, yeah, those are the two. Of course, Stephen King, short stories, not the novels. Too damn long for me. Never finished one. Haven't been able to get to half, you know, as much as I try. Mm. <laughs> his books are next to uh, David Foster Wallace on my bookshelf. They're just too damn long, mm. you know. Brilliant writer, too damn long. But his short stories are fantastic. I think the scariest story I've ever read, at least the one that creeped me out the most, that I've ever read is uh, Children of the Corn. And I read that about 3 a.m. in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I was reading his <laughs> uh, reflection, uh. And that did not help me go back to sleep. I was just <laughs> creeped out. And I was like, okay, that may be the best story I've read of his, and maybe one of the best stories I've ever read to be able to get that emotional response.
0: But. Yeah, I understand what you mean about transgressive. My favorite subgenre of horror, I don't know if there's really a subgenre that you'd refer to as transgressive horror, but definitely horror with a transgressive patina to it. Like, Brett Easton Ellis, just like you said, I really liked I still need to watch the other movie. I think it's called Parents, but I had him on the show. Christian Taftrip. I don't know if you've seen Speak No Evil. Oh, God, is that dark? (laughs) It's a great movie. And yeah, I've never heard it from Brett Easton Ellis's mouth, but I've heard multiple people say the reason that he was so tedious in his description in American Psycho was because just like the descriptions he gave to products, he also did with people. And it was to convey the fact that he was a psychopath, so everything was just a commodity. People, things, everything was analyzed for its usefulness or lack of use. And, and vanity. But, uh, vanity. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. was the whole
1: book. I mean, it made sense. That's who that character was. That's who Bateman was. He was just methodical and just completely detail-oriented with everything. I mean, you know, somebody hands him a business card. He's looking at the glossy finish, the thickness of the card. He's got everything. It just mentally breaking everything down, like you said. It's
0: even got a watermark. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So for the book, and again, I really enjoyed the book. But, uh, you know, my problem might be, I just might have a short attention span. Maybe that's why I talk about smaller books and I read smaller books. (laughs) That could be the problem. It may not be the book.
0: I also heard... And I kind of hope that it's true. When they had optioned the book American Psycho as a movie, Christian Bale met with Brett Easton Ellis for some reason. I can't remember what it was, but he showed up in character as Patrick Bateman. And I think he only made it through about a minute or two before Brett Easton Ellis got too creeped out and asked him to stop. He's like, dude, just really. (laughs) Yeah, please. Because I think he I think he channeled a lot of his father into that character. So he was probably like, look, I don't, <laughs> that's in a book now. I don't want to like sit next to this personality. So.
1: Yeah. He's not the most likable <laughs> guy, you know, it's like, it's like you like the character, but you wouldn't like to be friends. Yeah, with the character, exactly. <laughs> so I get that. Yeah. That's funny. That probably did happen because, uh, Brett Easton was in the Hollywood scene. He's, you know, he's been around that life mm. his whole life. So, yeah. You know, you said you weren't sure if that's true. I bet it is. I'm willing to bet it is.
0: Well as counterintuitive as it sounds and there may not be an answer to this but what do you find to be the most positive mental benefit from reading and writing horror stories especially the ones that don't have a happy ending
1: um you know again i think it's a break i consider myself a fairly happy person so it's a break you know and of course jump scares are always good and just the unexpected is always good to kind of get you thinking it's therapeutic it's a break the normal day and not that my normal day is bad I love my family yeah but it's a break from reality for me you know I've never tried romance novels maybe that would be a break (laughs) also I I don't know
0: yeah it's kind of like for me it's kind of a toss-up between like a adrenaline rush and maybe the way a cold shower zings you out of your stupor and
1: yeah you're Mm awake
0: there
1: you go not a fan of cold showers, but... Uh. Neither
0: am I, but uh, I've been told, like, you hit the gym quite a bit. You've seen... What was that old Schwarzenegger documentary? Was it called Pumping Iron? Or, yeah,
1: yeah, Pumping Iron. I believe that is the title. It's great about him and uh, Lou Ferrigno and, yes, and all those yes. guys. Yes, yes.
0: Yeah. And it shows them in the shower after working out and you don't see any steam. I'm pretty sure and I'm pretty sure they still do it, but definitely back in the day, those guys would take ice cold showers after they were done working out. Supposed to be very beneficial to uh, muscle recovery, but yeah, it's not an enjoyable thing to do.
1: (laughs) It brings blood to the surface, I guess. You're also burning calories because your body has Mm -hmm. to keep itself warm. So you're using energy and calories to do that. My wife, since she's Started this journey through cancer. She's gone and done the cryo stuff. She does the, uh, there's another one like infrared. So it's kind of the opposite side of that. So it's kind of like just the extreme heat and the extreme cold uh, forces your body to react. And I guess good things come of it. But uh, I just want a nice, you know, semi hot comfortable
0: shower <laughs> <laughs> my uh, mom and stepdad have their own infrared sauna ah, and right. my stepdad i don't think he was careful enough with dehydration he dehydrated himself into a incredibly large kidney stone and had got like a massive infection and oh, had to gosh. uh have surgery so yeah. listeners at home read horror take cold showers and stay hydrated <laughs>
1: Yes, <laughs> Your dad may be like my dad. My dad passed away a few years ago, but he always overdid everything. Mm-hmm. You know, so if it's like take two teaspoons of this, he would take five. Mm-hmm. And that was just how he did. So if he were to have an infrared sauna, he probably wouldn't have made it out of that thing. He probably stay there <laughs> days at <a> time. So- <laughs> just
0: mount a television in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I don't think you're supposed to do it like that, Dad. But you know, each his own. It.
0: Well, have you ever learned anything about yourself during the process of writing a story? And uh, if it's not too personal, could you tell us what that is?
1: Uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a sociopath. Outstanding. On the verge. Of- I knew I liked you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The verge of psychopath. I haven't acted on my my impulses yet. Uh, yeah, it's a release. It keeps me from killing people. I write it on the page. No, uh, obviously, I'm joking, everybody. You know, it's funny when you try to think like something you've learned about yourself. It's such a weird thing to put you outside of yourself and think about. Writing has kind of shown me like, all right, I'm fairly creative. I can come up with some good story ideas, you know, and then the craft itself. I've worked to get better at initially, not very good. I've come a long way. say in the beginning of my writing career when I got a book published many, many years ago. It was an absolute train wreck. Looking back on it, I learned that I was an arrogant asshole. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> refused to take any criticism, did not want feedback, editing anything because I was Bill Shakespeare, uh-huh. you know that kind of thing. I'm published. I'm the one. I'm the best here. <laughs> uh, of course, that doesn't that doesn't take you very far, you know. <laughs> Especially when you're not any good, you know. <laughs> you got to be good to be able to act that way. But, um, but yeah, you, you know. Besides that, I learned a lot of what not to do. I learned a lot of who not to be. I've also learned that if I'm not creating, I kind of find myself getting a stump, I guess, for lack of a better term, where I just don't feel like myself unless I'm able to get some creative outlet. And I know a lot of creatives talk about that. It's a true thing, you know, and sometimes if it's not writing, I'll pick up the guitar or something like that. And that's kind of a release to or draw with my daughter, you know, but creating you know, it's just a part of me. And I'm not trying to sound like this great artistic genius thing, but it is true without being able to sit down and create something, words or what have you. i become very irritable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, my wife doesn't get too happy with me and all that. But yeah, again, that's a strange thing to look at, to think about outside of myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So don't be an asshole. Uh, <laughs> when you get into writing, it's a challenge. I know you can do it. <laughs> Well, that
0: particular incident you were talking about, how old were you?
1: Uh, The writing thing?
0: Yeah, you were talking about?
1: Uh, My first book got published. I was turning 30. 30. Okay. Yeah, I was turning 30. So that's uh, 13, 14 years. Yeah, 13 years ago. I guess I wrote it 14 or 15 years ago.
0: Okay. Yeah, because that kind of uh, connects to my next question do you think age and/or life experience can make or break whether someone's able to write a good story?
1: Um, well, I think everybody's capable of a good story. Mm-hmm. Obviously, more life experiences are going to give you more ammo mm-hmm. for the story, more ideas. Dialogue is very important with me. Believable characters is very important with me, so if you're a person that is limited in conversational situations, you'd probably have a hard time writing believable characters and the communication between those characters Mm -hmm. age wise, you know, it may just be me, but I used to say guys don't even start to grow up until we hit 30, (laughs) but that may be just speaking for myself.
0: No, I think Um, it's probably accurate (laughs) across the
1: board. (laughs) (laughs) My female friends that are, you know, in the dating world. And I always ask, how old is he? And they'll be like, you know, 29, 30, you know, whatever. I'm like, well, you got to remember, there's a curve here. <laughs> so in <Yeah. laughs> 10 years, he'll be a great guy, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, age, you mature as you get older, obviously. And again, you know, when I started writing that book and it took me a long time, and if we talk about that particular book, it's a train wreck. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I was a young guy. I was arrogant. You know, I wasn't mature enough mm-hmm. to realize that I wasn't as great as I thought I was, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's for a young man, that's hard to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, again, I think everybody's capable of a good story. You know, writing is just writing. You're creating something. If you've got a good idea in your head, put it down. And, you know, you've asked me a few times, did that relate to that? Or do you think this happening to you related to that? You don't really know Mm -hmm. for sure. Ideas don't come from you really. They just kind of come out of nowhere, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, You're not trying to come up with that idea. It comes to you. Uh
2: But yeah, the only thing I would,
1: you know, I'm rambling would be the dialogue. You've got to at least know how to talk to people and be in conversational situations to be able to make believable characters. But outside of that, again, I think everybody's got a story.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, the thing that prompted that question was a long time ago, I watched a interview with Dean Kuntz, who I think is a great writer. I just, you know, not particularly my cup of tea, but I think he's an amazing writer. And he was saying that he wrote a book when he was like 21, 22, something like that, and said it was a mistake and said that you shouldn't write until you're at least in your mid thirties when you have life experience. So I started thinking like, wow, that's (laughs) age usually indicates that you had a lot of life experience, but I'm sure you can be of a particular age, be 35 years old, and depending on how you lived your life, you could have a very sheltered, very vacant, very narrow perspective of things. And I contacted Christy Aldridge, who I had on the show at the time I had her on the show. She had written a collection of short stories called All the Pretty Hells You See. And one of the stories, Hell's Bells, was about an older couple, I guess I should say. I think they were supposed to be in their late 60s or something like that. And she wrote the point of view of this older man. And he ends up murdering his wife, just kind of snaps one day. And she got into his perspective of why he was upset, what it had been like to be tormented by his wife that he'd been married to for so long. And I mean, granted, I'm 42, I've never been that old, so I couldn't tell you if what she was saying was accurate or not, but it came off very authentic and very believable. So I asked her how old she was when she wrote it, and she said, like, somewhere either 24 or 25. Yeah. So it's like, Jesus Christ, and I think... Brett Easton Ellis wrote Less Than Zero when he was 20, 21, something like that.
1: If that, yeah, uh, he might have been 18. Or yeah, I mean, he, yeah. Was, he was he was really, really young and he just had a good idea and went with it. Mm-hmm. And the book, you know, the book sold, did well, and they made a terrible movie.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I, I think I started watching that movie. I just remember, wasn't it? Uh, it was Robert Downey Jr. Oh, yeah, and Oh, God, I can't remember his name. I can see him in Weekend at Bernie's.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: the, uh, Andrew McCarthy. Yes. Andrew McCarthy, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I never finished it, but, yeah, I don't remember it being too too great.
1: And he wasn't too pleased with it. The coolest part about that movie, though, because it was in the 80s, and it was like the beginning of the movie, it's like that really rich party in L.A. or mm-hmm. something, and there's a ton of, like, 13-inch TVs stacked on top of each other, mm-hmm. and, like making this man that was that was it back then yeah that
0: was like that was the high-tech shit that only the rich people had like are those color (laughs) holy (laughs) shit man Uh, and then like like i can totally see i forget the name of that adam sandler movie but there's a television you know it's like your standard cathode ray tube television and, uh, the kids are like, you know, I think millennials or whatever. And they're like, what's all this for back here? Is this like storage? <laughs> like, no, there was a time where there wasn't flat screens, <laughs>
1: man. Yeah. We're spoiled now with TVs. That's for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. So where is the strangest place you've ever gotten a story idea?
1: Um, I don't know if it's necessarily strange, but the ideas come at the absolute worst times. All right. So <laughs> Thank goodness for the iPhone, I can take notes and I have to, if I don't take a note, I won't remember it. There's not a chance. So, you know, but it's usually when I'm driving, I'm not able to use my phone or I'm in the shower away from my phone or in the middle of the night, I'll just wake up sometimes when I'm working on a project and uh, I'll be like, oh, so-and-so needs to do this, you know, <laughs> and it's like, this is the worst time because so I'm going to get up, go take notes or I'm going to put it on the computer and then I'm going to have a hell of a time going back to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, nothing really strange, but, yeah, just bad timing. <laughs> Whatever I'm not able to sit down and do it, you know, or I shouldn't be, that's yeah. usually when the ideas.
0: Yeah, when you've got your uh, mind occupied, if you're trying to focus, nothing happens, and the minute you divert your attention elsewhere, it pops into your head.
1: Exactly.
0: Well, how did you uh, hook up with D&T Publishing?
1: Um. So when I came back into writing and I started writing again during COVID, I was able to actually step back away from the day to day and say, I love writing. Why did I stop writing?
2: <laughs> and I started
1: <laughs> writing, again, uh-huh. you know, I also started playing tennis again. Not very well, not, <laughs> not good at all. You know? But <laughs> I was like, I play tennis all the time. What happened? You know, 20 years ago, I'm like, oh, that's good to play tennis. That didn't last long. But, you know, yeah, during COVID, you know, I was able to step back. So I started writing again. I wanted to change my focus in writing. Obviously, I wanted to improve my craft. I also wanted to get some short stories published in anthologies, which I had never done before. I had a bunch of stuff in magazines. I used to write for This Is Horror, do articles, reviews, and stuff for those guys for a while. But I never had anything in an anthology, short story-wise. So that was going to be my focus. And they had a call for a political horror Mm -hmm. uh, anthology, one of their first. It might have been actually their second anthology, brand new company. So I yes. sent in my little story. They accept it. I work with Dawn, you know, back and forth through edits, very easy to work with.
0: So is she and the editor? Great,
1: but, no, at that time she may have been, but I know if I had a question, she was always quick to respond mm. and that goes a long way. You know, like you feel valued when somebody's actually responding to you, mm. not just yeah. referring you or dumping you off to somebody else. So, so, you know, the book came out, it, did whatever i don't know how many sold but i remember it was just a pleasure working with don and i'm a very loyal guy so being that dnt was my first publisher in an actual anthology and accepted my first piece of work coming back into writing which was kind of a big deal for me Mm -hmm. when i came up with the idea for the white i said i'm going to give them first dibs before i send it elsewhere and i reached out to don told her the idea of the story kind of what I had in mind, approximate word count at that time. I was still going through the rough draft and everything. And she said, well, we just so happened to have one opening for publication at the end of 2022. So this wasn't an open call or anything. I just kind of lucked in at the right time. (laughs) Once something or other happened and that opening came available. Mm -hmm. Sent her the book. She loved it. Got back to me. And you know, and I always told her, I said, you don't have to accept everything I send you, but just know I'm going to send what I have to you. I'm gonna give you that option. Again, I'm a loyal guy. They've done well by me. They're great to work with. They're putting out quality books, and that was another big thing, obviously, when I decided to send a DNT. There's the loyalty factor, but there's also the quality. I've had my fair share of horrible publishers in the independent and horror world many years ago. I've alluded to it. But So seeing what they were doing, seeing how new they were yet, how credible they were, seeing the praise they were getting, quality of authors, book covers were great. You know, I go, this is pretty much a no-brainer. If they like this book, there's no reason for me to go elsewhere. And again, she loved it. And here we are. I've got another one scheduled to be released by them in June. It's a throwback to the summer of 1986, which would be perfect for this summer. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited. Again, they've been just a delight to work for. I think Dawn... Puts her authors first. So she'll respond any time of the night. I try not to email her, message her in the middle of the night. <laughs> I know we all have families and other things to do. Yeah. She works full time also. So I know how busy she is. But again, she's always responsive. And another thing I really like about them is she kind of gives you your freedom and mm. how you want to market. You know, being a small press, if you go with one that doesn't give you that freedom and they're saying, we handle all the marketing, small presses don't have a whole lot to offer as far as a financial budget for marketing, et cetera. So if your hands are tied and aren't able to really contribute, that's probably going to hurt the sales. And again, something I've been through before. So yeah, Dawn's been great. She's all about her authors, other authors that I know that work under D&T. We're all in a consensus. We all are very happy with the process and with those guys. hmm um, so, and, and it's kind of cool being a fairly new publisher. You know, I like to see things grow. I like to contribute to things. So, you know, I'd like to hopefully look back someday and say, you know, I was there in the first few years of this publication company, this publisher, mm-hmm. and look where they're at now. Look where I'm at now. You know, it'd be really cool to kind of grow together. But yeah, no, they're great. They're great.
0: Yeah. That's what I hear from everybody there.
1: Well. It, I, I will add this. I don't know that T fella, so I'm not too sure about him. But, uh, <laughs> he, oh, is Dawn that what it
0: is? And Dawn and yeah. okay, I yeah. got it. Yeah. <laughs> is he a silent partner? What's happening?
1: <laughs> That's a silent husband partner? <laughs> no, he does a lot. He does a lot. He just handles other parts of the business. Yeah. Um, so she's more hands-on with the authors, but uh, mm. but I'm sure he's just is delightful.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of which, the cover art for the book is by Don Noble, who, I mean, he seems to do a lot or maybe all of the covers for the books released. Does he uh, do it?
1: So Don does most of the covers. Oh, they okay. brought in another artist for D&T because they're putting out more books. Mm-hmm. And the other artist, I believe the Facebook handle, it might be Ash Eric Moore. I believe that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Don't hate me if I'm wrong. But um, and, I, and I've seen their covers. I've seen a couple that they've come out with, and they're pretty solid also. But Don's great. Don Noble. He designed the Halloween story for me also. Mm. He designed the white, put that one together. He'll be putting together all of my future works, at least at this given moment, unless never say never You know. <laughs> but at this moment. He's doing art and I'm writing and I'm going to stick with him. I got the pleasure of interviewing him for the New Blood interview series I did at the Hore Tree. I don't know if you've seen that. Mm-hmm. which is basically the rebirth of Indie Horror, where I interviewed writers, artists, publishers, just different folks in the Indie Horror world that are you know, making a name for themselves. And I got to really get to know him mm-hmm. prior to having him work on the covers. So I kind of found out what made him tick, what he preferred, how he liked to do the art and go through the process. So I knew that he's one of those guys, he wants you to kind of tell him what the story's about mm-hmm. and just let him go.
0: Oh, okay, right? so... You don't really get involved with the actual concept. You just kind of tell them what the story is about.
1: Yeah. I mean, you're going to have some input and of course he's accepting of that. But yeah, I said, here's the idea of the story. These are the characters. Here's some relevant scenes in the book that stood out for me writing it. And then you just say, here you go. You know, Mm -hmm. and then he came up with both of those books, a Halloween story and the white. We made a couple of small tweaks Mm -hmm. on both of those. Get them perfect. But I mean, if you're, you know, going through that, he sends something that's so close to perfect that you only need a couple of things. Mm. I mean, it's pretty amazing. It's like, that is exactly what I was hoping for. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I saw the artwork,
0: uh-huh. but
1: now he's great. Um, he'll be designing scratched. I think he might actually be working on that right now. And that's going to be really cool because it's going to have some interior artwork also. So I'm excited about that. So I'm putting him to work for that one. And then, um, I'm going to request him to design Two Minutes with the Devil. That'll be the one by DNT coming out in June. But yeah, no, he's great. He's great, man. Really cool guy, too. We talked about psychedelics and all kinds of stuff. You know? <laughs> 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 uh, he's a traveler, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, tell me about your novella, Scratched.
1: It's a novella currently sitting at 21,000 words. So it's okay. about 30 pages longer than the white where it currently sits. Okay. I'm expecting it to be between 25 and 30. So it'd be a more of a full-length novella
2: mm-hmm.
1: on the longer ends of the novellas. But yeah, this one is uh, its a story that I've kind of been playing around with for years and hadn't really done a whole lot with. It's been sitting there and just timing right now felt right. It's basically elitist socialites from LA and Hollywood area end up taking over this little small town Destroying it basically. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. So they go and they leave the city, and all these people are like, Oh, move here. This is a great place, little quaint, little small town. Next thing you know, it's overrun with overpriced cocktail bars, yoga studios, mm-hmm. BMWs, Mercedes driving around. But the book is you know, it's about that town being overtaken by these folks. And in the background, there's a chupacabra <laughs> that's uh, murdering goats and starts murdering people. Mm. I changed the cryptic legend of the Chupacabra just a little bit to where not only does it like to drink the blood of goats, but it also likes lonely women. (laughs) (laughs) So this one, you know, the white was really tense. This one has tense moments, but it's a lot more fun. I'd say it's a bit more transgressive, you know, influenced by the fellas I mentioned earlier. Hmm. Lots of silicone, lots of sex, (laughs) uh, lots of blood, lots of scandal. You know, characters you probably won't like on the surface, but once you get to know them, you may feel for them.
0: Some uh, (laughs) anti-heroes?
1: Yeah, pretty much. The way I explain it to everybody, to to speak more shortly, is it's basically like the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills destroying a town and then getting destroyed by a chupacabra. So I'm like, who doesn't want to see those bitches get (laughs) (laughs) terrorized by a (laughs) chupacabra? I know I do, so I'm (laughs) writing No, I wish him the best.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, after that, you have another one coming out. Two Minutes with the Devil?
1: Two Minutes with the Devil. And that's the other one coming out from D&T. I'm going to release on my own. And I mean, I'm excited about all of them. Right. This is one when I wrote it and when I went back, I always let them sit for a little while before I dive back in and go through the editing process as I'm re-going through it. There's that emotional response. You just feel for these characters. And a part of it is it's kids.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, it's 1986. They're kids that would have been a few years older than me. I was born in 80. Mm -hmm. So these kids were probably born in 77, 78. They're a few years older. You know, that preteen age. There's bikes. There's tree houses. The environment, the setting is loosely based on where I grew up along the Gulf Coast. Mm -hmm. Kind of my childhood. How it was we'd leave in the morning. And then my stepmom or dad would yell for us at the end of the day. (laughs) It's time to come home and eat dinner. Uh Uh, So we were all over the place. But um, the story is, you you know, the urban legend, the Bloody Mary thing. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear kids? Okay. So I created a new urban legend kind of with the roots of that called Two Minutes with the Devil. And the premise is, obviously, it has to be dark. So the concept of the game is you have to close your eyes, go into this dark area, stay there for two minutes. And then your buddies will tell you when two minutes have gone by, you get to come out. If you open your eyes within that two minutes, and the devil sees you, he eats your bones, mm. right? So I've got this whole little poem, little nursery rhyme thing I put with it, which is pretty cool. But kids start disappearing while they're playing this game mm. in this little town. And here we go with another one of my books. Where I don't want to give anything away, right? Yeah. So, <laughs> so you're not going to know what's happening until <laughs> until later in the actual read. But yeah, kids start disappearing in this town. And some of the other kids are trying to figure out what's going on. You have parents that are kind of oblivious. You know, they're watching Ronald Reagan on TV, bitching about him. You know, it's a, a total <laughs> 80s throwback. Uh-huh. The arcade's open. Rampage doesn't have a line today. It's phenomenal. You know, let's go play Rampage. You uh-huh. know. It's, it's a lot of cool stuff. Kids stealing Hustler magazines and Mountain Dews and, you know, all the <laughs> stuff we did as kids. Before
0: uh, the internet. <laughs>
1: Yeah, but you know, you've got a lot of depth in there with these characters. And most of them were loosely based on people I grew up with. I don't even remember their names anymore. Mm-hmm. There is a white German shepherd in this book. And I do remember his name. And I named the dog the name.
2: <laughs> <So>
1: <laughs> his name was Hercules. Uh-huh. And that dog followed us everywhere. And kind of the same concept here. The dog follows these kids everywhere in and out of town. He's just always by their side. But it's just really cool. It's a really cool story. I think people will get behind the characters. There's some young love in there. There's some darker elements with parental issues and stuff. And then, yeah, people are disappearing. Young people are disappearing. So it's going to be a fun one. I don't want to give too much away, but Mm. I'm really excited about it.
0: Awesome. Well, I was going to kind of rewind a little bit. You've alluded to it throughout the show, but I'm getting mixed signals. I don't know if I should ask about it or not. Your uh, book, Memoirs of a Violent Sleeper.
1: Awesome title, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I wrote that. started writing that, I think, when I was 20. Kind of got shelved for a while. I revisited here and there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, by happenstance, I met the publisher in person somehow. And it was a random thing. It was a publisher out of Austin. And that's when I lived in Austin, obviously. But I meet this guy. Next thing you know, this company's publishing my book. So if you're a young guy or lady and you've got, you know, your first piece of work is about to be published and printed, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big deal. Cool story. Terrible book. Mm. Total train wreck. Um, <laughs> that book still haunts me. Um, it's, it is cheesy. It is the epitome of a guy who hasn't found his voice and is working extremely hard to sound like his influences, oh, you know? Okay. And at that time it was Chuck Glanick. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a really bad version of Chuck Kalanick. Basically a lot of shock value in there, unnecessary shock value, mm-hmm. just a really bad story. But I learned a lot from that process. I learned at that point that I wasn't a very good writer. I learned that, um, in this business, really in any business, don't be an asshole. Don't be arrogant. When I was working with the editor and they're saying, we suggest these edits, and I would say, not a chance. <laughs> you just don't get it, you know? And looking back, it is what it is. I wish I could take it back. <laughs> <laughs> you can't do that right. So you got to think, okay, what did I learn from it? I learned to work hard, become a better writer, which I think I am now. I'm not perfect by any means, but where I'm at now compared to where I was when I wrote that piece of shit novel, uh, <laughs> it's night and day. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then, yeah, listen to feedback, too. That's another thing. But the story was cool. It's a great idea. And it's a true disorder. It's a guy that violently acts out his dreams. He doesn't have the chemicals to shut down his nervous system. Mm -hmm. So when he's swinging in his dreams or fighting, he's swinging in real life.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So the idea is cool. You know, these folks that have to sand the corners off, they can't have any sharp corners in their room, can't have any exposed glass.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. So it's an interesting story. And where I took it, you know, imagine not being able to sleep and worried that you're going to beat the shit out of whatever's around you. Mm. That can hurt your chances at building a relationship and your confidence in relationship. Yeah. So this guy, the protagonist, you know, he goes through his drugs. He goes through prostitution. It's very transgressive, but he can't have a committed relationship. He can't sleep next to anybody. Mm. The book ends up being a love story, but in the real world, a total train wreck. Again, I think it was a great idea. It's just the writing and the writer at that particular time, which was me many years ago, was an <laughs> ass. Uh-huh. And you know, that's that's the way it goes. And now that book's out there. I don't think you can buy it anymore, but it damn sure is out there if you look it up. Uh-huh. <laughs> it <was> just, <laughs> I tried to have that thing removed and I don't do it. So
0: <laughs> well, learning experience. I used to put out narrative fiction before I started doing an interview format and oh God. <laughs> I'm glad I had control of that. Unless somebody downloaded it for offline use, it's no longer available. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Well,
1: you know, I'm thinking if all of us look for it together, someone can find it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We could get it back out there for you. (laughs) Yeah, you could
0: just, like, all pool your resources and start a website and have it streaming for free. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what is the life of Matt Michelli like outside of writing?
1: Oh, it's fucking fantastic. I mean, it's great. Like I said, I'm, I'm a person, as I've gotten older, I try to pay attention to all the small things, all the good things, be grateful for what I have. I've got a beautiful, amazing wife. Mm-hmm. We had our scare. She's got basically 35 more days of treatment and then she's done with everything. She's been cancer-free now for a few months. So we're ecstatic about that. We're ready to move on from that chapter. Mm-hmm. And with that being said, we're all very fortunate because most that get that disease, the one that she has, don't have the same outcome. Mm-hmm. So we just happen to be the lucky ones. And again, just forever grateful for that. Got an eight year old little girl. Mm-hmm. She's as boisterous as they come, <laughs> smart as hell, mm-hmm. battles her dad on everything. <laughs> you know, really, when it comes to reading, I try to, you know, say, like, you got to read 15 minutes. She will not, you know, it's just funny because I'm a writer, like her English teacher at school. She's in third grade, Her reading teacher. He's like, you're a writer, right? Like, he's like, Adeline is a great reader, but she hates reading. (laughs) He makes it apparent all the time. And she always says, my dad's a writer. I don't want to be a writer. (laughs) (laughs) But no, uh, she's awesome, man. So typical day, I'll, I'll give you our Fridays. We do pizza movie night. Last Friday, my wife had something with her girls. She was out with her friends and my daughter and I we caught up on all of the old Arnold movies that I grew up on. So we watched Predator, mm-hmm. and, which is awesome. She's eight. So I'm like, if it's too scary, we'll turn it off. Now, there were a couple of moments with some salty language I had to kind of speed <laughs> through. <laughs> uh-huh. We watched Predator. We watched Commando. She absolutely loved it. She thought it was hilarious with the one-liners. Uh, we even <laughs> watched Running Man, which now I realize is a Stephen King. You know, when you're a kid, you don't realize that's a Stephen King.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, somewhat of a horror sci-fi movie, but yeah. So yeah, man, that's all the simple things. Having pizza, having a drink from time to time, hanging out with the family, that's it. And if I can squeeze in some writing time, I do that. I run a business too, I won't get into that because mm-hmm. it's not nearly as glamorous as this whole writing life. you know. <laughs> but yeah, trying to find time to write, that's probably the most challenging part of my day. But today I actually had four hours. I sat down for four hours and got cracking. So that was, that was awesome. Nice. But, uh, but uh, life's great, man, life's great. Do
0: your friends and family raise your work?
1: Well, here's the thing. Some, yes. Some are big fans. Obviously, my mom is a fan. <laughs> <laughs> I have some other friends that will buy everything I put out. And you know, if they don't get to read it first, they're mad at me. Uh-huh. So they're, They really like the writing. It's so weird. And I talked to Mark Towsy about this, mm-hmm. the author of Nano. We went back and forth a little bit, just communicating on Messenger and stuff. And then I actually interviewed him for that series I did. And we talked about it. Sometimes it's harder to sell books to your friends and family. And then it's hard to grasp why too, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're like, it seems like all of your friends would spend 10 bucks on a book, but you know, it's just one of those things writing or really anything in life. If you expect people to do what you would do, Mm -hmm. you're always going to be disappointed. Yeah. So I've kind of lost that, but it is funny to think about though. It it seems like every one of your Facebook friends, all your family would have the book. Um, Now, I write whore, so I'll use that as an excuse. They're like, I'm not going to read that. <laughs> you know. And then at the reunions, you get your aunts going, how do you write this stuff? They look at you like crazy <laughs> you know, It's not gross, is it? You know, whatever, <laughs> <laughs> you know all that stuff. But uh, no, it's fun. I mean, yeah, I got a few. Honestly, my wife doesn't even read them. Mm-hmm. She's right now focusing on more positive. Yeah. <laughs> in this journey. Yeah. More spiritual stuff so horror she's kind of been turned off by that a little bit yeah i love hearing like stephen king's like his wife pulls the manuscript out of the trash and reads it and it's like you have to publish this and i'm like my wife will put it in the trash
0: (laughs) i didn't realize that was a thing i didn't know she did that
1: (laughs) yeah yeah But, no, I mean, she's super supportive. Don't get me wrong, but, but yeah, it's just not her thing. you know it's like yeah. she's like, I need something light and happy, my stuff's not necessarily mm. like
0: happy. <laughs> heavy reading,
1: yeah, yeah, a little <laughs> heavy a little tense. you get all stressed out, you know
0: Well, is there any advice you would give to someone that's dealing with cancer in the family?
1: um yeah, and I'll take it a little step further, Vince. So cancer or anything like that, our dear friends lost a preemie baby Mm -hmm. a few few weeks ago. And I was asked by the mother to write some words of encouragement that would be read at the services. Mm -hmm. That's a daunting task. Yeah, And I mean, I was honored and I just told myself, I was like, this has to count. And that was probably the toughest piece of writing I've ever written. It did come fast. I did read it. I got through it, teary eyed. I prefaced it, I said, if I don't look up at the audience, it's because I'm having a hard enough time getting through this anyway. So I'm just going to read the words, you know, and get Mm. through this thing. But my advice for them, and I'm kind of a straightforward guy, I'm a realist, we're not promised happiness all the time Mm -hmm. and life isn't fair all the time. We're not promised fairness. What we are promised, and this is kind of going to that speech, is a life full of adventures, Mm -hmm. some heartbreaking, some great also. But my big ask for them and what I would tell anybody going through a hard situation, cancer and cancer's tough. It's tough on everybody is just don't lose sight of the good. There's a lot of good. Right. Don't lose sight of the small things. You're going to get worn down with everything that's wrong, everything that's bad. And if you just pay attention, there's so many wonderful things in this world that are priceless. Mm. You know, just waking up, letting the sun shine on you, hugging your daughter just pay attention to the small things. You know, my wife, we really kind of embarked on this journey and it was a whirlwind. She went in for routine blood work, physical, no symptoms, really said she was feeling a little off, but I was just like, well, you're 42, (laughs) you know, you're tired. Yeah. You're tired. If you're 42, your back hurts. Yes. Me too. You know, but she always hates when I say, yeah, me too. She did. Oh, she loves that. (laughs) But, you know, she went to the doctor, they came back, said your blood work looks off. It's probably nothing though. But it could be leukemia. It's probably nothing. Mm-hmm. Let's check you in three weeks. So my wife calls me like, yeah, they want me to come back three weeks. I go, three weeks. How about we go recheck right now? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not going to be able to sleep for three weeks thinking you might have cancer. So doctor was totally cool. Said, OK. So went in, did blood work. A couple days later, calls. I'm sending you to an oncologist tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or to the oncologist. The oncologist says, can't believe your blood work. It's really strange, but it may be this. Only way to find out is we're going to do a biopsy tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So it's like, wham, bam, wham, bam. So we go do the biopsy. We've got an appointment to see her at the end of the week, the doctor. She calls prior to that, six o'clock in the evening. You've got leukemia. You're checking into the hospital tomorrow. You'll be there for 35 days while they do this treatment on you. So we're sitting here going, okay, we've got to figure out, you know, we're like, what the hell's going on? First off, we can't even wrap our brains around this whirlwind that's just come into our lives. And then we find out that my daughter's not allowed at the hospital, my eight year old daughter, mm. you know, thank goodness for FaceTime and stuff like that, that they could see each other, mm. but it was just bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. Right. And if you only pay attention to that, it's going to make things a lot harder. There's good news mixed in there. You know, it's like, well, she's like, I've got three meals a day. I'm comfortable in here. You know, I don't want to be here, but mm. they're taking good care of me here. You know, treatment seem to be working. Blood works fine. You know, so we really looked at life differently from that point on. And again, it comes down to just gratitude, just being grateful. And like I said, just don't lose sight of the good. That's my advice. And I know I went in on that story and everything. I hope that sharing that can help some folks, as I know how challenging it is. But just think about the good. Even my friends that lost their preemie baby, who was only alive for a few minutes, that she got to hold, and she's saying to the baby, "She's passed." I told them "I go." you had those few precious moments with that child. Like be grateful. You got to sing to her, hold her, Mm -hmm. you know, she could feel your love. But yeah, it's a weird deal, man. Life's really strange. It's not always fair, especially in year 42. I just turned 43. You start seeing, you know, you see your grandparents and parents go through stuff and then uncles and stuff. And then you start seeing your friends and your spouses go through stuff. And that mortality thing's coming for all of us, you know, Mm -hmm. at some point or another. But, um, but yeah, just, pay attention to the good things.
2: Well,
0: Matt, it has been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Yes, sir. Absolutely. Hopefully I didn't ramble too much.
0: Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, as we bring the show to a close, is there anything you'd like to plug or let your readers know about? Maybe reiterate some things.
1: Support Indie Horror, The White. It's getting really solid reviews. You can get the Kindle version for 2.99 and get the paperback for 9.99 on Amazon where books are sold Scratched should be coming out early March so watch for that one that one's going to be a lot of fun a little change of pace mm-hmm. a little sillier a little sexier a little more gore and then of course Two Minutes with the Devil this summer so yeah just keep an eye on the books that are coming out buy as many copies as they'll allow <laughs> <laughs> support your indie horror authors you can find me at mattmacelli.com m-a-t-t-m-i-c-a-t-l-i dot Find me on Instagram, Michelli World, Facebook, Matt Michelli World. I'd love to connect. So anybody that wants to reach out with any questions, feel free. I'd love to answer any of them.
0: And take cold showers. Take cold (laughs) showers. All right. Listeners at home, all links are in the description. And Matt, thank you again for joining
1: me. Absolutely. Thank you, Vince.
0: And thank you to everyone that tuned in. If you liked today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast newsletter by clicking the link in the description. Stay healthy, stay sane. And as always, thank you for listening. See you next time.